Hi there, everyone. I'm Naomi Mella, and you're listening to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual, and inspiring careers. My guest today is writer, journalist, and broadcaster Alexandra Hemmingsley. Not too much unusual in that, you might think, but it's the content of what Alex writes that is particularly personal, beautiful, and at times extremely raw. Her two best-selling books, Running Like a Girl and Leap In, A Woman, Some Waves and The Will to Swim, were two of the original books on the subject of running and swimming for women who weren't traditionally sporty and aimed to showcase that these activities are completely doable for normal women. They are funny, relatable and inspiring. Running a marathon or going sea swimming are daunting prospects for many women, but Alex talks of wobbly bits, wetsuits and sports bras with ease and humour. In Leap In, Alex also writes frankly and brutally brutally about her journey through IVF treatment and the physical, mental and emotional toll it takes on your body. Wonderfully though, she safely delivered her son Linus in 2017 and is raising him by the sea in Brighton with her partner. Her most recent project, whilst pregnant, was co-writing Judy Murray's autobiography, Knowing the Score, which is an excellent read from both the sporting and parenting point of view. Before we kicked off the interview, we were discussing this podcast, why I set it up and what I hoped for with it, and quickly strayed into talking about her work with Judy. Well, it's about positive role models as well, isn't it? That's something Judy Murray was really, really big on when I've been interviewing her. She's an amazing woman. I mean, how how was working with her? I bet that was brilliant, was it? It was completely brilliant. It was, I think it was one of pretty much the most positive working experience of my life partly because she was just lovely and fun and sparkly and funny and partly because she's genuinely inspiring and wonderful and also because the course of writing the book almost exactly covered my pregnancy so I really felt like um I don't know she was the main person that I spoke to throughout my pregnancy (laughs) Um, so yeah it was lovely in that respect as well it felt like it was a sort of very specific period of time yeah 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 and she's um you know she's obviously raised two sons who have very um good attitudes about uh, women and sport and and equality and and all that sort of thing and actually she always just see, she comes across as somebody who's just such a role model herself but in a very um understated way I think yeah, I, it came across really clearly when we were um, sort of talking about once we sort of had a chronology, as it were, of her mm-hmm. life, how long it took her to find her voice. She was living a feminist life for many, many years, you know, mm-hmm. when she wanted there to be change or needed there to be someone getting something done and um when she felt that she was the best person for the job, despite there being men up for it, she just got on and did it. But I think it took her until the boys had sort of had a level of success to feel like she was not, that she was entitled to discuss it as well as to have been doing it. Yeah. Cause I really feel that in the last, she's been to me as a, a member of the general public and I, you know, I'm a tennis fan and a sports fan, but I'd say that in the last couple of years, I would really say that despite her boys being successful for maybe 10 years, you know, really successful for 10 years now, that it's probably in the last sort of two or three years that mm. I think she's been more out in the public eye about her feminist views and and about coaching and, and mentoring and all that sort of thing as well. I re- You sort of get the impression that she's the confidence to to say those things and be out in the world and and, and write about that or speak about that has really come on relatively recently, given how long she's been in the game. And that in part was to do with sort of 
degree of misogyny that she encountered as they were coming up like mm. um she, I, it was astonishing when I was to two years ago when we were in the planning stages of doing the book before there was a deal or anything whenever she'd put something on Twitter I'd look at the responses and there's always a stream of people saying who cares what you think riding your son's yeah. coattails and that there's definitely been a perception for a long time that she was some sort of um I don't know, along for the ride type mother rather than that. Mm. She was the national coach for Scotland for years and years and years. She's mm. got an enormous breadth of wisdom about sport, about coaching, about tennis uh, and about being a mother. You know, just, you know, just because she's sitting watching them play tennis doesn't mean that she's riding their coattails to some sort of magical life of celebrity. Mm. And I think she was very, very aware of that. And it wasn't a fight she felt she could have until the boys were fully established because then it would have just exacerbated and made everything worse, I think. Or even worse to be accused of being a tennis mother, that you're just the sort of pushy parent that wants your child to be successful. Yeah, but also, why shouldn't you want your child to be successful? That even in itself, I mean, this isn't something she's explicitly said, but it, it always struck me like, and obviously nobody wants to see a parent who's encouraging or forcing their child to the point of the child's detriment. Mm. But the idea that um, she was very articulate about when we were discussing it, the idea that um, it, it was just this massive anomaly in the sporting world for a woman to be articulate about ambition, mm. um, that, you know, there, there's a fine line that sports women are supposed to tread between you know, being ruthless and getting to the top and winning, but also then being, oh, well, you know, it was all down to the wonderful team around me at the end. Mm. Whereas we're really used to seeing men just standing there on the, you know, the touchline or the starting block saying, I'm going to do absolutely whatever it is. I, I'm giving it my all. I want this this year. And it's, it's a massive difference in mm. expectations, which then translates into you know, tennis mum, which is in itself sort of not, a, I don't know, it just doesn't really mean anything. There's sort of two points there about, I wonder whether British parents are, because of, you know, there's a sort of fallacy about, or not, maybe not even a fallacy, but a perception of British people being less um, willing to put themselves forward versus perhaps Americans or Australians, you know, that we're quite, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that or, or no, it wasn't me or, oh, gosh, this old thing. Yes, I've had this for years. You know, <laughs> and we don't take compliments very well. No, um, I don't think that exists anymore. When you look at football or the our, our Olympic athletes, I think mm. that's much more, I, that's a, I think that's a stereotype of amateur sport of sort of, you mm. know, play up and play the game. Mm. Um, you know, whatever you, whatever your best is, is the best you can do. But I think in professional sports, there's no sense that the British are, uh, if anything, in football, the British are giving it all the talk and not <laughs> getting that far compared to our tennis players. Yeah, <laughs> now that is true. Um, except the women who are talking the talk and yes, doing the and exactly. doing the play. The women are amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But. Um, do you, that's that's quite inter- quite interesting uh, the, the the difference between amateur sport and and professional sport and um just in terms of encouraging 
participation that's something I'm really passionate about yeah. it's about um you know obviously having success at professional sport is motivational and provides role models for children but um you know actually encouraging I think some women are discouraged by um the idea that sport is is too difficult to get into or it's a closed field or I'm not a sporty person and you know those are and actually breaking down those barriers whilst we obviously want to encourage professional people to be super confident so that we can win and it do how what what are your thoughts on the balance between um, encouraging competitiveness and winning ways versus encouraging participation well, in terms of participation, and it has changed, and it has definitely improved since I wrote Running Like a Girl, mm. there's been progress made, but there's not been enough progress made. Mm. The difference was that sport was marketed to men as an integral part of their daily existence. So the, the sort of idea of five-a-side football would pop up in yeah. a sitcom or... Um, a beer advert or it was it was part of the wider sphere of recreation it wasn't something it wasn't to do with getting fit Mm. or self-care in any way it was just something that was part of being a man and obviously in some instances that goes to the to the extreme itself of you know, the sort of toxicity of if you don't have some cracking bants about the World Cup this year, you're not, are you, can you really call yourself a man? Mm. Other end of the spectrum is pink sport, which was sort of this hyper-feminized idea that women weren't having fun, which obviously they were, but it was not part of the promotion of sport or sportswear you know, the the netball team that meets every Monday night or the women that um, were doing cold water swimming off the beach in Brighton every morning at 7am, weren't, they weren't visible anywhere in what we saw sport as. The people who were sporty that we saw, it was like they were the finished product. Yeah. So it was professional athletes or women were seen in sitcoms having to go to the gym or they were marketed a yogurt. So it was part sport was used visually as sort of a shorthand for weight loss. Yeah. It, yeah. It, was, it was something that women were obliged to do as part of maintaining themselves for the enjoyment of everyone else. And it was something that men were doing intrinsically as part of their manliness. And there has been a lot of change at both ends. And I think if any, you know, perhaps the men, men being allowed to say, do you know what, I don't care about football, but I'll go for a run five times a week because I know it's good for my heart and lungs. That needs to be said too. Mm. Um, But for women, it was, there was no sense that, and women were kind of getting on with it. There were lots of women who'd found running and were loving it, and I hear from them the whole time. But there's also the main the main people that I wanted to write Running Like a Girl and Leap In for weren't the people who knew that they didn't really love sport and but would go to the gym to just work on it and to to be healthy or who were, you know, had a dog and did some really long walks every week so they didn't need to do that much exercise. It was the people who wanted in but felt like it was a closed club. Mm. Number of people who would say, 
and, and it used to be me. Oh, I'd love to do that, but I can't. And if you ever stop and say, oh, no, why not? They'd go, because because I don't. And and you then have to say, but don't isn't the same as can't. <laughs> yeah. And I love the fact that from your writing, it was your dad that said that to you to start with. It's not that it's not that you can't run. It's that you don't run. Yeah. And those actually are two quite different things, aren't they? A defining moment in my life. <laughs> Your dad sounds like a complete legend, incidentally. <laughs> he is one of the loveliest people in the world. Um, and, yeah, still still enjoys his his sort of golden halo from running like a girl, much to my fury. <laughs> he sounds like he'd get on very well with my dad, who is also very quietly spoken, used to run marathons and doesn't say much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I think Amazing. marathon running was in the 80s much more niche. I mean, the running boom of the last five or six years has been absolutely extraordinary. It's almost yeah. as if you're, I mean, I don't work in an office anymore, but I feel like the pressure to do, take part in some sort of race in most people's offices now is enormous. Whereas I think the people that were going out and doing their long runs for the London Marathon in 1983 were the freaks of the office. Absolutely. And actually now almost it's it's got so normalised that a marathon is not enough anymore, you oh, know, unless you're doing... <laughs> Shame on you if you haven't or at least done several ultramarathons. Absolutely. I wonder how... And I, funny enough, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and wondering where are we going to be in five years on this? you know, like what, what will be the normal in inverted commas then and whether actually mm. it either maybe it'll go full circle and this phase will will lessen or or will it continue to extend that people just run further and further and ultras just become more, an ultra becomes more common. And also speed is becoming more, um, I was reading a piece yesterday on the appropriately named fastrunning.com about... <laughs> um, <laughs> about there's now sort of a sort of culture springing up especially in London of fast 5k's where you don't get a medal you don't get a t-shirt it's a flat tarmac course you have to book your place in advance and it, it's it's about fast racing it's not about just get round and there was quite a scathing comment in it about how park run has sort of um give it made everyone think they can have a go and it's like well that is yes that's the point quite explicitly (laughs) that's a bit like saying oh my goodness Facebook's got my data it's like that's what it's there for (laughs) um but they you know there's definitely a move away from just everybody taking part together there's definitely now people who just want to get really fast rather than just plod around once a week which is great I mean I think plodding around once a week is a lot better than not leaving your sofa because you're scared you wouldn't make it round. Absolutely, absolutely. That's quite inter- it's quite interesting how everything um how things have evolved and I think the the industry around fitness has just and running in particular perhaps um has just boomed, hasn't it? You know, and and actually it's a the, all the d- detritus and technology and and yeah. leisure wear and everything suddenly um, you know, in the last sort of five to 10 years, that's just become a whole massive behemoth of its own right, hasn't it? Yeah. And I have, there's positives, there are positives and negatives. Um, the positives are that hopefully there are, and I believe there are lots of people now running and moving 
who wouldn't have been otherwise if mm. it had stayed that sort of Ron Hill short shorts 30 <laughs> world it's good that it isn't just that world yeah um yeah but there it is in, I'm increasingly aware of how these races are often not being put on for the cardiovascular betterment of the nation but to make money and yeah. there's a lot of waste that goes on. I mean, something that I'm really trying to work with people about at the moment is the plastic waste at Marathons. Mm. Um, mm. It was really shocking at the Brighton Half this year. And whereas the Brighton Marathon, which is a totally separate company, has a really good policy and just gives um, recyclable, cu- compostable cups. And um, I think I think it's a little bit like like smoking was in the 1960s that in another five years time we're going to go oh my I can't believe that we thought that that was okay that you know when I run ran the London Marathon five years ago there are patches of that course when it's actually difficult to tread because the volume of plastic and these are bottles that are maybe 330 mils of which two or three sips have been taken and and then your running is made more difficult to plough through them. And that's mm. not because of everyone's hydration needs. That's because of a big brand sponsorship deal. That isn't though if they just wanted to hydrate everyone, they'd just bung some taps there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's actually and, and that's a little talked about but but really important um thing thing that's the same at a lot of big sporting events and these are you know think about how many events now go on around the country even on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. that actually the level of like you say the level of waste associated i'd never considered that before um although you know you see that when you do sporting events that there's all this plastic floating around the place yeah and and just actually it's a really good plastic bag with your t-shirt and Mm some tiny samples and all of that kind of thing. I would happily have a half marathon that didn't cost 50 quid to enter and mm. just be given a pat on the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because most people would throw would throw those things away, wouldn't they? Yeah. And actually it's just, it's just the culture we live in. In the car on the way home or... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think there's the industry is going to have to have an increased level of accountability for that. But... What's happened is that now it's almost like brands get their sponsorship and attach an event to the back of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, mm. increased accessibility in a, a run for everyone. Yes. Enormous plastic waste and f- doing a run while feeling forced to buy stuff. No. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just on a little change of tack. Mm. So you were... Um, working in publishing initially before you wrote your first book how did you get how did you get into writing as a profession or or, you know how did you convert or get a book deal to 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 move across and make that step I um I worked in publishing for about five years or something and then I went and worked for a crazy literary magazine which was run by the lots of the team that now runs port magazine okay um then I went freelance and 
then quite quickly after going freelance, I got my first book deal, which was for X and the City, the book everyone's mm-hmm. forgotten I ever wrote. Um, and <laughs> it's still available on still available on Amazon for anyone yeah, who wishes to purchase. And it was very much free credit crunch Britain. This was two thousand and six, and I got a really lovely worldwide deal um, on having written a proposal. It was about heartache. It was sort of meant to be a guidebook. It was basically running like a girl for the heartbroken. So, um, <laughs> and that, and then came the credit crunch and loads of magazines that I was working for folded. And, um, I moved to Brighton and was doing much more ghost writing then. So I'd sort of got my, I'd, I'd flexed my muscles at writing long form. I'd probably mm-hmm. done about four ghostwriting projects by then and that I'd done um I wrote the Strictly Come Dancing tie-in novels and um <laughs> I mean who knew they existed <laughs> yeah they were, um, it seems crazy that they even existed now but the, you know, they, it really it taught me to write books to write mm. differently than you needed to at that point for a you know for a glossy yeah um and had you done a degree in journalism or had a background in writing or no, had you I just always written and come into it that way? Yeah, I studied classics at university and then went into publishing. Um, and so I had quite a quite a good idea of how publishing worked in terms of like I'd sat as a junior taking minutes in the commissioning meetings, which was every sort of Monday or Tuesday when all of the editors get together and discuss everything that they'd been sent that week that they wanted to buy. And mm-hmm. so you, you kind of have to make your case like, uh, and then as a, a company, they decide how much they're going to bid for it or whether they're going okay. to bid for it, whether they have things that are too similar on their list or whether something too similar has just been published elsewhere. So I was quite aware of that process. So I think I was potentially less scared of it because I knew that it was just people who also couldn't sometimes work the fax machine and I had to help them out <laughs> photocopier or whatever but also um more scared of how quickly you could be dismissed I yeah. you know sometimes someone would be half the halfway through and everyone would go oh no not her again we tried to buy her book five years ago and turns out she's a nightmare or something like that, and then that that would be conversation over. Um, so I think that really helped. I was, I think, I was very pragmatic because mm. I've never mm. tried to be a literary novelist. Uh, yeah, and I think that's much harder because then all you've got is um, your voice. Because uh, actually, the the point of getting published and finding an editor and that just seems so impenetrable to a lot of people who write a book and have this burning desire to write about whatever that may be yeah and actually you know people can have a wonderful voice and lots to say but actually from someone who's outside the industry that often seems just so difficult to make the next step into being a published author yeah I think that what people would do well to remember in these instances is it's so easy to forget to think of publishers as some somehow sort of philanthropists they need writers. Their business model is over if people stop sending their books. That's <laughs> true. Saying, please, could you publish this? 
Yeah. And it's really easy to get into a mindset where they're doing you a favor. Yeah. You are the so stock. True. You are the tray of bananas in the front of the greengrocer. And if the greengrocer doesn't have any fruit in the front of their shop, no one's going to go in. <laughs> mm, sure, 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 sure. And actually, that's it's, it's, flipping on, on its head like that makes it seem, actually, yes, well, somebody's got to be published, haven't they? You know? Yeah, it's true. And obviously, the odds are that, and, I, and I've and i done it. When I first went freelance, I, I was not lucky enough to kind of go from being on staff of a magazine to having an endless supply of freelance journalism. And I did all kinds of, I worked in a cookery school two days a week. And one of the things I did was I did read the submissions at a literary agency one day a week. I would go in and literally sit in an office. And it the, the, it was, um, what was it? It was about 2004. So it was 14 years ago. So it's not digital. Okay. There wasn't a Kindle. I would okay. physically open wow. the A4 envelopes and um, read through things and sort them into piles, which was it's a really good idea. It needs masses of editing. Um, but there's something a really, that's a really smart concept or I really love this person's writing and it would maybe need the right editor to really push it or like totally, I love this. This is amazing. This And, and you know, the totally, I love this maybe in a year of doing that job was four and or did you five read some times. Horrendously bad things as well. <laughs> Oh my god, 90% of it That's is so horrendously funny. bad. It's, it, the main three topics, I'm not joking, I would say 80% of the submissions were either retired men who said, um, were, my family says I should tell my story, um, could you get it published or could you tell me how to publish it myself? And it would be, you know, my time in the continent oh, in the sixties or something like that, which is, you know, that sort of reflections or it would be women who had been divorced and were doing the sort of, and then she took up Scottish country dancing and refound herself all over again. Or it would be new fathers. So it'd be like, Oh my God, baby's poo. My hilarious guy. poo. Who knew, you know, you know, sometimes women fart when they're having a baby. Like they were yeah. first, all of them thinking, or it was grannies who were saying, my grandchildren love these stories and my daughter says I should really try and get them published. Okay. And I'm not joking. It was unbelievable how those four things were the main topic. And loads of people have made a fortune with each of those books there is a thriving market of sort of women rediscovering themselves post 40 I mean there are there are novelists whose names are not household names to to discuss on mainstream tv but who women up and down the country read day yeah. in day out and um you know the sort of world war ii memoir market is an enormous one and you look at Instagram and all the Insta dads and stuff. There's yeah, massive market that is. Yeah, time. and children's book, children's books are one of the healthiest parts of the industry. So it's then you know it's not with that it's not entirely daft that these people are trying to have these books published, <laughs> but that is most of what submissions are. And do you think that the the publishing industry 
because it's is it right to say that it is declining with the rise of the internet do you think that in a hundred years books will still be being published at the rate they are now or what are your thoughts about the future of publishing in books I don't I don't I don't think it's declining because it's changing what's happening is that um the the shop front the literal shop front as in the physical mm-hmm. bookshops that you that used to be part of thriving high streets 20 years ago is a much much harder environment for publishers to sell books in now mm-hmm. because um the high streets aren't thriving and shops only want book books are quite impractical they're big and they're heavy and they're difficult to transport in in that respect um so they are they don't want to stock books that aren't just going to come in and go back out again. Mm. There's not a very efficient use of warehousing or space. Um, so that's much harder for the industry to do. But you're, my, my editor said to me recently, you're never out of, you're never out of stock. You're never out of stock because Amazon has a few copies in all the time and reorders because of the, the computers are so sophisticated and people yeah. are ordering on Amazon prime. And so the, you, the book that used to be a real faff, you know, if someone wanted to get hold of a copy of a book that had been published to moderate success seven years ago, you'd go to your Waterstones and they probably wouldn't have it in and you'd have to leave your name and your credit card number on a piece of paper and they'd order it in and then it would arrive and then they'd ring you and then you'd have to remember to go in and get it and mm. that whole thing could take a week. Yeah. And now you can order it online at four in the morning and have it the next evening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, just revolutionized everything. There hasn't are it? people who, there are many people who have entirely sidestepped the publishing industry and are genuinely millionaires from online publishing. The, the number of people who just churn out books for Kindle readers or online readers um, if you if you've got that sort of voice and that kind of really plotty brain where you can keep coming up with, um, I mean, I hesitate to say Jackie Collins because almost no one's as good as Jackie Collins, but mm. that sort of brain that can kind of come up with stories all the time. Yeah, people have made unbelievable amounts of money doing that. So books are not dying, but they they hold a very different cultural position than they used to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, you have obviously written uh, Running Like a Girl and Leap In in addition to um, X in the City. Um, what is your, have you got a new project on the go or a new book that you can tell us anything about? Or? I do. I have <laughs> two book proposals that are about to go out, so I don't discuss oh, sure. yet. <laughs> But, but we can know. expect more more writing from you in due course, no doubt. Oh, God, definitely. Yeah. And also more ghostwriting. I'll never stop ghostwriting because I, I sincerely love it. I think if, like me, you write quite a lot about yourself and are quite revealing about yourself, it, I, I couldn't um, just carry on doing that uninterrupted all the time. I, I would definitely... Um, go a bit mad because <laughs> you do write ve- I mean ov- the, the obvious example is is the discussion about IVF um during leap in and you know you are incredibly honest open frank 
yeah brutal you know brutal almost (laughs) um, in in your honesty about that and I mean, I, for one, found it incredibly emotional reading, um, to be honest. You know, I'm 34 and I don't have any children, but I think it's, it's just, it's wonderful, beautiful writing, but it must be, is it hard to put that down or do you find it quite cathartic? Um, I'm not sure. It, It was hard to say it right, to do justice to what had happened, for it not to just be some sort of you know, kind of overshare blog from the middle of the night kind of a feeling. Yeah. But it, and so it felt hard to get it right, but it wasn't a hard decision to write about it because it had so, the, the relationship between the IVF and the swimming was so closely entwined and inextricably so that I'd been commissioned to write the book about swimming by that point and I had thought that it would much more closely follow the trajectory of running like a girl in that I would do a series of more kind of spectacular swims Mm. um I'd planned to do lots of other things after Greece um and so it's it was so obviously more interesting to kind of go to that micro level of coldness and smaller swims and the sort of internal journey and I became much more keenly aware of people who are doing um, exercise or movement who are otherwise restricted so people who've had injuries or been ill and I sort of felt like I I lived in that world for a while and mm. I felt like that was a story that deserved telling was it, it that running like a girl was a story about you know the the limitless of your body's capacities and then I was confronted with the limits of, mm. and that's it seemed like a much more interesting truthful thing to say than to sort of somehow mess up doing some more spe- spectacular swims and um trying to tell a story of my invincibility when I was feeling really vinced (laughs) (laughs) well um, because actually one thing that really struck me from from reading those sections was you know I've got lots of friends who've got children or are having children and we have friends who have had IVF and actually the stigma attached around talking about it is something that really struck me from reading your writing because actually I thought I have no idea what these people have been through Mm. while they've been having IVF because people just don't talk about it and you know, some of our friends would say, oh, we're having IVF. But I actually had very little idea about what that really entailed. And, you know, I work yeah. as a vet for a living and we give hormones to animals and I know I know what that does. But actually talking to other women openly about their experiences of IVF is something that just hasn't really happened, I don't think, has it? I think I was shocked by the number of people who think that the IVF, the difficult bit of IVF is getting the embryo in and that is seconds worth of work it's like a smear test really Mm. um it's getting the egg out (laughs) to Mm. fertilize it Mm. or the many eggs and so people don't I was really surprised by how little was understood about that and I definitely understand why people don't want to talk about it because there's this idea that the discussion of the hormones like it's going to turn you into a 
entirely different person. I told everyone when we did the first round, not everyone, but like people around me, because I sort of had this image that once I started taking the medication, that because they, they sort of hyper stimulate you to get you to have lots mm. of eggs ready, and then they give you an operation to take the eggs out in order to fertilize them in vitro. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, I'd have three shots of estrogen and then start being like, like Reese Witherspoon and Legally Blonde or some sort of <laughs> hyper feminine or, or that I would kind of have like extreme PMT and be throwing glassware around or something. And it, and it, is, it isn't like that. It just isn't like that. And I can see that some people would... Some people apparently are totally unaffected emotionally by it. And some people are really very, not very affected by it physically. Mm. Um, And I felt I was almost sort of telling people as a disclaimer, like, this is why I'm going to be weird next time you see me. (laughs) Um, It's like the the advanced crazy alert. Yeah, it's, it's much more like, I don't know, when you have, you're heartbroken. You, you feel like you're walking to work with no skin on, vibrating with the obviousness of your rejection. (laughs) Mm. And everybody else is just seeing somebody trying to get to work and maybe, you know, trips on the curb or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that's happening to you internally is not always um, as obvious to everyone else as you feel. So I I can understand why people would either not say that or say that because I really did think that the di- that externally the difference would be so big. And, <laughs> yeah, but but actually the the emotional toll and and the physical changes that you feel and and the mental changes associated with that are, I think you know mental health issues obviously are um, becoming you know more accessibly talked about which is great and people are um and I think I wonder whether uh, in the year of the woman that we're in at the moment it's something that people should feel more free to discuss and and um have open conversations about you know I, I know you write for the pool and they've had mm. a cracking series on at the moment oh, about childbirth yeah. and actually that's another thing that people you know people don't tell you that your vagina might get torn to pieces when you have a child like that's well, just not something it, people bring up as people, dinner party conversation often is it all that you're told you know some yeah. people um it's like oh you know just you wait or you know you can have midwives who are like oh you've got no idea what's coming and mm. grannies and mothers-in-law like oh you know you know, just got got to get yourself back in shape and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Some people really can almost be sort of scaremongering about it, and then some people just don't talk. I think family to family. I'm really mm. lucky. I have an extremely communicative mother and a lovely sister <laughs> with two children. So I I didn't feel um, that there was there was stuff I couldn't discuss. But also they both, my mum and my sister both got pregnant like instantly the minute they tried. Mm. So, mm. but the bigger thing was not talking about it, I think, is partly because with women especially it's associated with failure because yeah. for generations and centuries and millennia our function in society has been to provide the next generation, obviously not entirely alone, but 
takes a bit longer for us to have a baby <laughs> man to get someone pregnant <laughs> yep uh, action longer um, and so there is this sort of it's hard to show you know it sounds really silly but the person that I thought about so much when I was doing IVF was Anne Boleyn I wow I mean that's left that's left field yeah <laughs> because when we started it was not long after Wolf Hall had been on TV and it was really okay. it was brilliant and the book was brilliant but yeah. I'd read the book years and years and years before but the thought it's bad enough when you just love your partner and want to have a baby and have a lovely mum who'd love another cuddly grandchild but the thought of literally your life and your position in court being dependent on not just you getting pregnant but you staying pregnant and then you having to have a whole pregnancy during which you wouldn't have anything available to you to know the gender of the child and then for the sex to be revealed and for it to be the crushing disappointment of another woman it I could sort of every time it didn't work I found myself saying well at least you're not Anne Boleyn my parents would not have loved me one single jot less and we'd had very serious discussions you know my partner and I about what will what will we do if we can't have children and um I had friends who couldn't or didn't or wouldn't have children and there was a social structure and it was not entirely the norm but those people were there and I have LGBT friends who were trying to be parents or had chosen not to be parents there were people there but it really is only a couple of hundred years ago that it wasn't just like, oh, she's a bit rubbish, but properly take away her standard of living, her status in society, everything would be lost. And it's and it yeah. takes a long time to get pregnant. You don't always stay pregnant and then you still don't know what it is you're having all the time. And oh, mm. yeah, mm. I did mm. think about Anne Boleyn a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm. So, I was so so delighted when you know I read your work and and then finding out that you actually now have a wonderful wonderful baby. And I was actually just so thrilled for you that that was able <laughs> to happen in the end. You know, yeah. I think it's just a really lovely outcome when you've been so open and honest about about everything over the years. You know that for you to to have a child is just seems like a really fitting. Uh, conclusion to that to that little chapter of things doesn't it uh, it is and Linus is a really happy smiley easy baby he is a complete joy and he was the last embryo at which point we decided after this we're not going to do and that was the point when I finished writing leaping was mm. once I reconciled myself to the decision that if that embryo didn't work I wasn't going to chase IVF endlessly yeah yeah um so in that respect it's, it's it's like almost cinematic good fortune but I will say that there's um there is a book three going to happen and yes there's more material let's just put it like that slightly cryptic but very exciting we wish Alex all the best with her future adventures and many thanks to her for joining me today on the podcast. I'll look forward to reading book three in due course. Knowing the score, Leap In and Running Like a Girl are all available to buy online or from any good bookshops. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Hemo, H-E-M-M-O, and on Instagram at Hemograms. 
That's all for this time and thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time.